0: Hello Skywatchers, thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Dara
1: and I'm Greg
0: and we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in February in our Cosmic Diary.
1: When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark, and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode.
0: So to begin the month, you'll be able to catch the large waning gibbous moon passing close to the bright star Regulus in the constellation of Leo, and that'll be on February the 1st. If you look towards the east in the early evening, you'll hopefully be able to spot it there. Now, a group of stars in this constellation make up a mirrored question mark looking pattern, an asterism that's called the sickle, and Regulus lies at the bottom point of this. Regulus is actually a multiple star system, though. It's four stars split into two pairs of stars. The main star is blue-white in colour and thought to be a white dwarf star, a small dense star, one which our sun will turn into at the end of its life.
1: Due to the full moon falling on the 31st of January and the lunar cycle taking 29.5 days, February of this year will have no full moon in it. Although a full moon can be a delightful sight, astronomers often prefer the last quarter or the first quarter moon to look at craters on its surface, or a new moon in order to view deep sky objects with little moonlight to interfere. On the afternoon of the 7th, the moon reaches last quarter. It won't be visible in the evening, so catch it in the pre-dawn hours of that morning, or wait until a few hours before the sun rises on the 8th to see it in the southeastern sky. The boundary between the light and dark sides of the moon, called the Terminator, is clearly visible. This is the best place to look for craters on the moon, as the shadows cast from the crater walls make them easier to spot. Crack out your binoculars or telescope if you have one to see these details.
0: And if you follow the moon in the early hours before sunrise from the 7th to the 11th of February when it will be in its waning crescent phase you might be able to watch it glide past Jupiter then Mars and then the red star Antares in the constellation of Scorpius and finally Saturn over the course of these few mornings. Look to the southeast and try to get to an open area with no trees or buildings to obscure your view as these objects will be close to the horizon, especially Saturn, and you don't want anything blocking your view. The planets look like bright stars to the naked eye, and if you watch them over a few weeks, particularly Mars, as it moves quicker than the other two, then you'll see that the planets wander the sky, and it's easy to see why the planets were called wandering stars in the past.
1: By the evening of the 22nd, the Waxing Crescent Moon will be in the constellation of Taurus the Bull in the southwest. Close by will be the star Aldebaran, a red giant star. It's no longer fusing hydrogen gas in its core like our Sun. It's a more evolved star and has expanded to 44 times the diameter of our own Sun. The Pleiades will also appear nearby. This is a young, open cluster of stars, often known as the Seven Sisters. As with just your eyes and a clear sky, you might be able to spot about seven individual points of light in this cluster. However, the Pleiades is actually home to hundreds of young, very hot blue stars, which you can start to make out with the aid of binoculars or a small telescope.
0: Now, by the afternoon of the following day, which is the 23rd of February, the Moon will have moved to occult Aldebaran. An occultation happens when one object appears to be hidden by another. In this case, the Moon is much closer to us than Aldebaran is, so when both appear in the same part of the sky, the Moon hides Aldebaran from our view. The occultation peaks in daylight hours, but you may be able to see Aldebaran coming back into sight as the sun sets and the skies get darker. Aldebaran will be occulted nine times in 2018 because it, like a few other stars including Regulus, lie close to the ecliptic. This circle in the sky represents the sun's apparent path during the year, which is also similar to the apparent paths of the planets and the moon.
1: If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at ROG Astronomers. And you can also enter your astrophotos into our InSight Astronomy Photographer of the Year competition, which ends on the 9th of March. Also, check out other info on our website at rmg.co.uk. But now, it's time for our cosmic news.
0: Hello listeners and welcome back to the Cosmic News part of our podcast. This is the part where both myself and Greg pick a new story from the past month that we think has been really interesting and that we want to share with you. And we want you to vote for your favourite once you've had a listen to them. Uh, So this month, Greg, you're going to start us off. Hit us with your headline. What story have you found for us this month? Uh,
1: So this month I'm going with... The first time that astronomers have ever been able to observe the features on the surface of a star other than our own sun.
0: Interesting. So by features, you're not just talking about the the hazy light we reach or, you know, we get from them. You're talking about things like possible sunspots or flares. That's the that sort kind of thing. Of...
1: Absolutely. There are all sorts of other things that we find on the surface of the sun. The reason that we attempt to study all these these features on the surface of stars is because we want to understand how stars work. Uh, The majority of the studies that we have done on things like this have been on our own sun. That's the only easily accessible example that we have. It's by far the closest, by far the brightest, by far the easiest to study.
0: That makes sense.
1: Absolutely. And it's been studied for for hundreds of years, thousands of years in reality, but intensely for hundreds of years, um, trying to count the numbers of sunspots or looking at coronal mass ejections when material is blown off of the surface of the sun in vast um, eruptions. And all of this is in age to try to understand what's going on in the centre of our sun and indeed in stars in general. The thing is, we know that... The sun does not represent all stars. It is not the same for every star in the universe, and you can see that by eye. Uh, if you look up into the night sky and look at uh, the constellation of Orion, for example, uh, in the shoulder of Orion there's a, a an orangey red sort of star called Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse. Um, but in on his leg there's a blue white star. Rigel, And those are very easily distinguishable between just by the naked eye. Uh, We can also measure the distances to stars, work out how much light they must be putting out in order to appear, how bright they do. And so we can see that different stars emit different amounts of light. We can see that different stars have different chemicals in their atmospheres. We can see that different stars are different temperatures, different sizes, different masses... All sorts of different things.
0: It's amazing that we can do all of this basically by still being here on the Earth or perhaps having a telescope kind of, you know, in orbit around the Earth or just above our atmosphere, yet we still know quite a bit about these stars.
1: Absolutely. But
0: like you've just kind of explained, we haven't really imaged them. And this is, nope. this is something brand yeah. new.
1: So that's the big problem. Even with our most powerful telescopes... Uh, it is difficult for us to see the surface of a star. Uh, What a telescope tends to do is just make the the little dot of light that we see seem brighter because we're collecting more light, we're able to do more with it. But that means that we can't see what's going on on the surfaces of these stars. Now, there are a few exceptions. We have been able to, to image the the rough surface of a few stars in the past, but it's just being able to to make it slightly larger than a dot. That's all it's ever been in the past. Uh, We can't see the surfaces of them like we can with, say, planets in our solar system, where you turn a, a telescope on Jupiter and you can see its great red spot, or turn a telescope on Mars and you can see the polar ice caps. So here's where the Very Large Telescope in Chile, a very well-named telescope, it's a set of optical telescopes which are set high on a mountain, well away from any big cities. So it makes it one of the best observing sites in the world. So you've
0: not got the light pollution, hopefully relatively settled air rather than the warm air we have closer to the air. Absolutely,
1: above most of the clouds. It's a fantastic place to go um, to, to see the sky. Um, and it consists, These this very large telescope is actually several different telescopes. Um, it consists of four large, eight-metre-wide telescopes, so easily the size of a room That's pretty just, big. For the, just for the, um, the width of the telescope, not the length of it, just the width of it. Um, and a handful of smaller, sort of two-metre telescopes as well. And all of these telescopes can actually be used at the same time as though they were one vast telescope spread across this site. Uh, It uses a method which is called interferometry, um, where you collect light from all of the different telescopes and combine them together. Um, This means that the image that you get is is what we call deeper, so it is able to see fainter objects. Uh, But more importantly, it has a higher resolution. So in exactly the same way as moving from normal television to HD and from HD to 4K, the more resolution you have, the more detail you can see. Um, one particular instrument run by the European Southern Observatory called Pioneer, and in this particular case it was used by uh, Claudia Paladini and her team, uh, in order to directly observe this particular star, was finally able to see features on the surface um, of this particular star. The star itself is called Pi-1 Gruis uh, in the constellation of Gruis, I believe it is, I must admit. I'm not familiar with this one. It's called the Crane. It's a southern constellation, so don't be surprised if you haven't heard of it before, uh, if you're listening from the Northern Hemisphere. Um, It is a red giant star, so it's about the same mass as our sun, only a little bit bigger, but it's much, much later on in its life. Our sun is in the middle. It's middle-aged, basically. Um, This star is on the way towards dying.
0: This poor OAP star.
1: Uh, Absolutely, yes. Um, And it's grown. It's absolutely huge now. It would actually swallow Mercury, Venus, the Earth, and Mars if it would take the place of our sun. So its surface would be
0: extended so far out, our inner planets would be engulfed within it. Yep, all of them. Mm. Wow.
1: Yep, absolutely. Um... But that's a good thing, because it makes it much, much easier to see with a telescope. If you have an absolutely huge star, it's far easier to see uh, features on its surface. So what did they see? Uh, Well, what what they found was actually astonishing. So our sun, uh, indeed all stars, are extremely hot. Um, that means their surfaces are far from calm. They're constantly boiling over um, and the material is constantly rising and falling within the star and something called a convection cell. It's very similar to hot water rising from the heating element in a kettle and then cold water falling to take its place. And that cycle goes on and on and on.
0: Like a convection current. Exactly, yeah.
1: Um, These convection cells have been very well studied on our sun And they are about a 1,000 kilometres across. So big, but still only a tiny fraction of the about 1.2 million kilometres across for the sun. Um, But they've never been observed on any other star. Until now. They are there on this absolutely vast star, but they are very, very strange. They are huge.
0: Well, I can't imagine anything less. You've got a star that is several times bigger than our sun. So tell us then, how big are these convection cells?
1: Each one is 120 million kilometres across. That's a 100 times the size of our sun. And they cover a quarter of the surface of this star. These convection cells are absolutely huge.
0: So, kind of put that into context, so you say 120 million kilometres.
1: That's greater than the distance from the Sun to Venus. Just for one of these... That's a huge kettle, basically. It is a massive kettle.
0: But it's really weird, because this red giant star must actually be... Cooler than our sun.
1: Uh, it is, absolutely. Um, I must admit, I don't know why these convection cells are so much larger in this star than they are in uh, in other ones. I've no doubt that it has something to do with its advanced age or its cooler temperature. Maybe that means that the convection cells end up being smaller than the than the ones in higher temperature stars? I don't know. Uh, it could be because there are different chemicals in the star that causes all sorts of weird pulsations and vibrations inside stars. So it's, maybe it's something to do with that. I honestly don't know. That's well, where my knowledge ends.
0: always nice, though, with astronomy, is that we find out something new, and along with it comes you know 10, 20, 100 more questions Absolutely. that we then want to find out.
1: So this particular star has now been studied at least with this particular device and the hope is uh, that as technology improves we'll see more and more detail uh, and on even more stars, hopefully other stars closer to our sun, maybe one's even smaller eventually. Uh, There are limitations, the size of the star, the distance away from us uh, this one actually isn't too is is quite far away um, but still nothing compared with the, the size of our galaxy, it's about 590 light years away but our galaxy is 150,000 light-years across, so we're going a small way into our neighbourhood, but still a very long distance. Um, And hopefully, one day, we'll have instruments capable of seeing stars all the way across our galaxy of all shapes and sizes, and maybe we'll eventually be able to build up an even more complete view of the stars in our universe.
0: You've picked a really, really nice story for February, I think, um, and it, it just does go a long way to showing everything we find out is just building on our knowledge, and we're getting closer and closer to just finding out more and more, and seeing details on stars mm. is just an incredible thing. Yeah, I'm in awe of your story this month.
1: Well, let's see what you've got to, to counter it then, Dara. Well,
0: I thought for this month, instead of um, technically picking something that's brand new, I wanted to go back to something that has been highly debated, maybe, for the past 10 years or so. uh, And that is the debate over the definition of a planet. Um, Uh. Back in 2006, when Pluto was demoted in its planetary status... It did cause a bit of an uproar. There, there were, was
1: quite the public outcry. Yeah, yeah, I'm not
0: sure everyone was happy with it. <laughs> um, they they redefined the rules of what it meant to be a planet. Uh, three basic rules that you have to be a spherical object uh, to be a planet, that you have to orbit around the sun, and that you have to have a clear orbit as you orbit the sun. Now, Pluto is in a part of our solar system called the Kuiper Belt, surrounded by lots of other icier, rock, rockier objects. It doesn't have that clear orbit, and hence it had to be demoted to a dwarf planet. But that, heart, that whole argument, the whole debate has come up again now. Um, Not so much in the sense of dwarf planets and Pluto, but now in defining an upper limit for what a planet is. There are sometimes more massive objects out there in our galaxy, in our universe, giant planets much, much bigger than Jupiter as well. And uh, there's a bit of a contention. Should they be planets or are they something else? Um, So, this study was led by uh, Kevin Schloffman at John Hopkins University, um, and he set the upper boundary of a planet's mass to be between 4 and 10 times Jupiter's mass. So, once you get above that, he's saying that object cannot be a planet anymore. Uh, By this definition, all the planets in our solar system are still planets, um, but, like we've mentioned, there are planets around other stars, we call them exoplanets, And some of them are gas giant planets, which are incredibly huge, much, much larger than Jupiter. So by this new definition, they might not necessarily be exoplanets themselves. Um, So these limits, they say, can now be set because we have improvements in technology. We have many more astronomical observations. We've been able to observe loads of exoplanet systems. So we can see these patterns. We can see all these different planetary systems and kind of put uh, our theories to the test. So they looked at 146 planetary systems and uh, this scientist basically described it as narrowing down uh, a list of suspects for a crime. Uh, So he said, um, it's one thing that you know that you have uh, a suspect uh, for that crime that is over five foot. Um, But it's another thing to know that they're between, say, five foot and five foot four. You've narrowed down that kind of the entity in which something can be what it is. And they're trying to distinguish between what a planet is and what a brown dwarf is. Right. So a brown dwarf is more massive than a planet, but it's not large enough or massive enough to be a star. Okay. So it will never get hot enough at its core to undergo and sustain fusion. So it won't be able to to give out light like a star does. So it can't be a star, but it is much larger than a planet is.
1: Something, something in between these, these two classic objects.
0: That's exactly it. Um, and they actually think these brown dwarfs could be the most common objects in our galaxy. Mm. And they will provide really important clues, not only to the formation of planets, but to the formation of stars themselves as well, because they lie in that kind of middle region. But he, the scientist here says that size alone isn't enough uh, to kind of determine whether These objects that we might be finding are planets or something else. We also need to know about their chemical makeup or the chemical makeup of the star around which these planets or objects are. So gas giant planets, they are almost always found orbiting around stars that have more iron than our sun does. So like you mentioned, different stars have different elements in them. Our sun is mostly hydrogen and helium, um, it may have traces of other elements, like iron as well, from the cloud from which it was born, um, but other stars have different elements. They have, m- pro- they could possibly have more iron, and by looking at these systems, they found that gas giant planets usually always form around those stars which have more iron, um, and it suggests that uh, these gas giant planets form bottom-up. So, if you've got A star that's made up of heavier elements there will be a disc around it full of those heavier elements too and it's from that disc that planets form so those heavier elements will form rocky cores and then they will be enshrouded by a gas atmosphere and that's how you get those gas giant planets But that's not the case for brown dwarfs, we think they form top-down, they are almost like uh, stars in the way that they, uh, they are born. They collapse down from uh, a huge cloud of gas uh, and so they, they form differently. So Schlauffmann the scientist found that objects that are ten times more massive than Jupiter, they do not prefer to form around uh, or near stars that have lots of heavy elements that will make rocky cores. So this is why he's proposed that if an object is more massive than 10 times the mass of Jupiter, we shouldn't be calling it a planet. We should be calling those brown dwarfs. So there's an interesting definition. Perhaps, you know, in a couple of years' time, we will have a, a reamendment to our definition of what a planet is, just like we did back in 2006. What's really nice, though, that I found linked to this story is um, recently... Uh, Scientists have used the Hubble Space Telescope uh, to find the largest population of brown dwarfs, which they found in the Orion Nebula. So you mentioned the constellation of Orion and how we find different coloured stars in there, Betelgeuse and Rigel. The Orion Nebula is found just underneath the three stars that make up the belt of Orion. And they used the Hubble Space Telescope because of its exceptional resolution. And not only does it detect optical or visible light that we see with our eyes, it also has great infrared sensitivity. So it can detect infrared light too. And it was looking into the Orion Nebula to find some very small stars. What it also found, though, were 17 brown dwarf companions to these little red dwarf stars they were seeing. They also found a pair of brown dwarf stars... And they also found some planet systems too. So they found a brown dwarf with a planetary companion, uh, a red dwarf star with its own planetary companion, and then get this a binary system of two planets orbiting around each other without a star in their presence. So it found a Ooh, huge range weird. of uh, kind of substellar objects, things that could be huge planets, that could be brown dwarfs. And they were able to detect these because brown dwarfs are colder than stars. We know that they're not fusing to produce light and generate heat. Uh, And Hubble is detecting the presence of water in the atmospheres of these substellar objects. And uh, water basically lights up like anything when you look in the infrared So they're looking for smaller and smaller stars. As they get redder and fainter, you have to go into infrared to find them. But like we said, water is very prominent in the infrared. So by looking for those stars, you're going to find the things that have water vapor in their atmosphere. And these brown dwarfs have small amounts of water vapor because it's cold enough. They're not stars that Mm. are hot and have blown off that water vapor. Um, So, finding the signatures of these low-mass stars and their companions, we hope will become much more efficient with the launch of uh, JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, which is due to be launched next spring. So, we've got something to look forward to, hopefully, in the coming year. It's going to have a mirror, which isn't as large as the telescope that you described in Chile. It's going to have a 6.5-metre-wide mirror. But if we compare that to Hubble, which only has a 2.4-meter-wide mirror, we're talking about something that has a much larger light collecting capacity. Um, They say it will collect over six times more light than Hubble currently does, Uh, and it will have a much better resolution. Uh, They say it would be able to resolve a penny that is 40 kilometers away. So, if we had two pennies side by side, normally, if you tried to look for them from far enough distance, they would just blur into one if you could even see them. But if I held two pennies side by side, 40 kilometers away, the James Webb t- Space Telescope would actually be able to see them as two individual pennies. pretty impressive. That is very impressive. <laughs> and I'm really, really excited to see what it's going to be able to achieve. And with the detection of these substellar objects growing, the things like these large gas giant planets, brown dwarfs as well, it's really important that we have a good way of defining what these objects are. Mm, Because as we have the technology to detect them, we can then classify them into the different things uh, that we know, or hopefully know, that they are. So there's my story for this month. Um, I thought it was particularly interesting in the sense that, you know, science is always changing. We have a definition, but it's not stationary. It doesn't... Stay it's as not it fixed, is. Absolutely. Yeah. We
1: can. We can be wrong. Yeah. I think <laughs> there's that's nothing a, wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. As
0: long as we keep working to find out where we are wrong and how to get better. Yep. So there are the two stories for this mm-hmm. month. Then.
1: Uh, well, that's it for our cosmic news segment. Two news stories for you to vote on on our Twitter feed at rog astronomers. Uh, last month's poll had 63 people voting. 46 percent. Were for the sauna on mars and 54 percent for the most distant black hole so that's one win each dara
0: wow okay we're level
1: yes listen to our podcast next month to find out who won this time
0: until then that's all for lookup we'll see you next month <laughs>